When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 4, Natalie and the Aftermath. Welcome to Episode 4 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. This week, we have a packed episode lined up for you. First, we'll pick up where we left off last week with the conclusion of the park sequence. Then we'll delve into the character of Natalie, portrayed by Lalani Sorel. And we'll also take a closer look at the maniac's ape and the scavengers. And we'll talk with Mario Valdez, who played Samurai. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria, they're new monsters. They're not the dead returned to life or something like that. When I wrote it, I was really tired of stumbling zombies with dead eyes. I thought, what about a film that has creatures and monsters who have eyes as bright as yours, have intelligence behind them, who have facial expression, who move quickly and you couldn't get away from them. They're sort of extra dimensional supernatural beings that enter our dimension, our plane of existence at will. Brian Sauer, Pure Cinema Podcast. But the park is an incredible set piece where you basically have all the maniacs show up and it's a siege on these kids you know, classic 80s stuff, drinking in a park. And the park scene is just so awesome because these guys are just, they they are not going to, they're all like Terminators in a way, but they're like more like Friday the 13th Jason type Terminators. They are just there to kill people and not talk about anything, not say anything. That's another big peeve of mine is, you know, killers like this in 80s movies that have to have a little quippy thing these guys don't need to talk to you and they're not going to. And by the time you figured out why they're there, you're already dead. You know, like you're either, you know, decapitated or shot with an arrow or there's all kinds of great kills in that opening sequence. My name is Steven Romano. I am the creative director of Avon Press, which is a division of Vinegar Syndrome Publishing. I mean, there is the gruesome moment where the, where the, where the head gets chopped off while the guy's being, you know, uh, serviced but you know even that is all done in cuts I don't really actually show the the actual contact of it all but you know i mean that this the idea of that is pretty horrifying <laughs> well cool i mean is there a maniac that is your favorite out of the bunch samurai of course samurai is my favorite even though he doesn't really do much yeah i just think he looks really cool <laughs> he's my favorite maniac number three samurai my name is mario valdez 
and I played Samurai Warrior and Neon Maniacs. It was a funny experience because <laughs> I'm laughing when they do the uh, Griffith Park scene. And I remember when I went to the shooting, when I showed up, I got lost. It was foggy. I look in front of my windshield and I'm on the green of the golf course. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up there. And I just went, oh, shit, <laughs> getting lost in the fog. Now, that was scary. That was scarier than the movie. <laughs> I can handle the monsters walking around at night. But being on the green, that was just bizarre. It was like, I felt like something lifted the car and just planted it on the green. And then the fog starts rolling in. And I'm like, what's going on here? Is this part of the movie? Are they playing a trick on me? <laughs> But yeah, no, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. The crew was a lot of fun. The makeup the makeup people were fantastic, and I remember just sitting in my in my little wardrobe thing there and just looking in the mirror and just just really admiring the work that they did. It just it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty diabolical, but I really. I really, really got into character. I'm a very method actor, and I got into the character uh, in the dressing room, looking at myself, and just going dark, just going absolutely as dark as I possibly could. And when I came out, it resonated. <laughs> it resonated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the makeup really, really made me become that character and yeah it was it was it was scary I actually scared myself at times looking in the mirror and you know kept kept that kept that feeling going that that aura going and it worked it worked for me it was unbelievable the makeup job took about three to four hours to do yeah the make the makeup people were very very courteous they would uh I remember the main guy, I forget the guy's name, Italian looking. Alan. Yeah, Alan. Alan was so cool. And um, he would always save me food, you know, for the uh, when they catered the food on the set. And of course, when my makeup was done, I ate like a person that hasn't been eating for a year <laughs> and shot some major food down. But uh, but yeah, that was that was pretty uh, pretty cool. Do you remember doing any of the attacks to the kids, or it, it feels like it's a lot of shots of you, and then cuts of? Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. There was a lot of up close of me, and and then yeah, they would they would you know move over to the other other actors. My name is Timothy Snell, and I edited Neon Maniacs. I feel, and it may have been for the MPAA or something, but I think a lot of the killing sound effects were reduced because it feels like a lot of them were almost missing. And I have a feeling that we were going for a rating. Um, I don't know. It just seems to me that along the line, people would have gone for a more prominent slash, you know, watermelon, those kind of effects when they were sort of minimized. That may have been a choice Joe made. Park victim one. Park victim two. 
Park Victim 3. Park Victim 4. Park Victim 5. Park Victim 6. Park Victim 7. Park Victim 8. I also recall sort of how impatient I was on some of the editing, meaning I would cut off of things a little quick. And I'm trying to remember why I did that. And, and it may have been to just try to keep things urgent. You know what I mean? And I also, when I was watching it, remembered that I had to spend a lot of time lengthening time. I remember that I had to, I don't want to say pad it out, but I didn't have a lot of unique shots in that when they shot something, they maybe shot one or two shot angles on it or something. So I had to turn that into, I don't ever like to go back to the same shot unless there's a reason to, but I had to, I had to, you know, I didn't have the shots that they had in Die Hard, you know, where you have 40 angles on one piece of action, you know. And throughout the whole piece, it seems like I had to try to build out I had to extend and draw out the portent, the pending approaching and whatever is going on with it because, and I was afraid to do it at first because I didn't know if people were gonna buy the characters. And I, I, and I did come from that ilk of just show pieces. And when they went into the park, Joe sort of paid attention to me and he got the shot, you know, in the park when they had the first big killing you see the arrow come along and you see some pieces, but he abandoned that pretty much. And I think it was because of time. He could only get his masters. He only had time to get his master and maybe a tight shot, you know? I mean, they were, they were shooting fast, but I must say the lighting in that thing looks excellent. And that's because of Joe. Joe, if anything, used up probably time he could have spent on getting a few more shots with getting the lighting to his liking, which was very important to him because he's essentially a DP. My name is Christopher Greenwood and I was a third electrician on Neon Maniacs. But uh, yeah, the, the funnest part I think was at Griffith Park and that was just long nights and slimy cables, you know, a lot of electric electrical cables and, and then we lit it but we had to use these really big lights they were called 13k brutes and they were they had carbon rods in them and it made an arc it was we called them arc lights and they actually made a noise and we had to keep them pretty far away from the set a because they were so bright and b because they actually made a sound so we were lugging those huge lights around all night long all over the place and we didn't have enough to light the whole place. So whenever they would change angles, we'd have to move all the lights around again. It was, it, it was a rodeo. My name is Wayne Beecham. I was a special effects coordinator and pyrotech. There were like three or four guys and they were all different. One was a hanging man with a rubber neck. Maniac number four, hangman. I'm Alan Apone. 
makeup effects supervisor for Neon Maniacs. Uh, I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist. How about the hangman, his effect, uh, his his look? Oh, hangman had the broken neck. Yeah, he had the broken neck. I'm trying to remember, was that Mark Goodell's makeup? Did Mark so. do that one? I think so. And, and didn't, didn't uh, that's the, what's his name? He also played Juice, yeah? I think in the, maybe in the second half he played. Um, I think you're right. Uh, hangman played Juice because the original Juice didn't come back. Maniac number five, Ape. The funniest guy was like the guy that, uh, that looked like a little caveman. Yeah, Ape, his uh, name what? is? Ape, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it reminded me of a uh, of a land of the lost. Hi, I'm Matt Asner, and uh, I played the character of String Bean. The one I never understood was the, was the caveman. I, I I never understood that one. I mean, I not not that the other ones made much sense either. I mean, I it's like what a samurai? What's going on here? I don't even understand it. The guy jumping out of the tree, he was weird. I was just like like fuzz attached to his body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that rubber cement with fuzz stuck to him. I said, you gotta be, that's gotta be miserable. He, he said, yeah, I love it. Really? No. <laughs> he was cold too. It was like, he had very little clothes on. Yeah, he was cold. I remember that. Can you tell us anything about Ape? Like, what's his story? Uh, I don't know what his story is. I sculpted Ape and applied that makeup. I tried to take the name pretty literal in the makeup so that he had, it wasn't a Planet of the Apes makeup, but it was ape-ish, more like maybe Neanderthal or something. I know that we had two different people play that part in the movie. Um, the main guy that I sculpted it on, he had a real, he had a nice physique, but it was more like slender, swimmer build kind of guy. And then we had another guy play the part who was much stockier. And, <laughs> and it's like photo. it was two different makeups. <laughs> a group photo with a stockier guy in it as Abe. And he's sort of Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> you know, he's a very, it looks like Ernest Borgnine. Because the yeah. kid who played the first Abe was phenomenal. Yeah. So he had a really good, I mean, plus the way he played it was really cool, I thought. Mm -hmm. so he, you know, it was, you know, he was much more athletic. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, it was sculpted for him, so it fit him properly. And the dentures were made for him. Yeah. And then when we got the new guy, I think we just kind of ground out the dentures and realigned them with Flexicryl. It's, it is what it is. You know, hopefully, I, I don't even recall because it's been so many years since I've seen the movie, but I guarantee you I can pick which one is which of the lineup. Oh, you can. It's, it's <laughs> night and day different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that, that. was a fun makeup. I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's not quite a Planet of the Apes makeup, but it has that very apish quality to it, but it didn't have the lower jaw. It was just like a, upper face piece and uh, the hair on the face was hand laid and the hair from here down was hair mats that I laid on a mannequin and floated off and applied them for speed. Uh, and because I could make a whole bunch of them to match ahead of time so that literally I could pull it out of a box and put the glue on and just slap the mat on and it, it worked 
fine. Of course, the bigger guy, it didn't fit him. <laughs> you know, it's like on, I forget the first guy's name. Was it Mark or I don't know. I don't remember what the first ape's name was. I think, I think it was Mark. Yeah, it was Mark. So the, the hair mats for Mark, you know, stopped where they should, you know, like at the shoulders and went across the chest. And when we got the, like the bodybuilder, the big guy, it's like the mats ended here. <laughs> and I had to add extra hair. <laughs> and, the, uh, and the facial hair too was a little wanky on him. Yeah, it was all wanky. Yeah. I mean, because with Mark, we didn't put any hair on top of his head. We used his natural hair. Great all the hair that I made for the mats and laid on him was the color to match Mark. Right. But then I don't remember the other guy's name and, and nothing really matched. <laughs> no, I just remember. That. And I feel like they that we did Mark and then we did the other guy and then we did Mark again. I feel like that happened. I don't remember. I don't remember. Like there might have been a scheduling issue and they just called this guy in at the last minute or something. I don't yeah. know. I don't remember. Yeah, the van scene, you know, where the maniacs are coming out and cutting everybody up and busting the windshields and all that stuff. And on that, matter of fact, I was uh, rocking the van. I was one of the guys, you know, when they were filming, you know, showing the van rocking inside. We were outside, actually, hands on. It was like, rock the van, rock the van. It was like, we were rocking the van forever. We're like, <laughs> can we stop? I mean, just this for, for like an hour. And they're trying, you know, and because they're doing different angles inside the van, you know, they're moving around the girl looking out the window or she's, you know, crawling in the back and, you know, there, there's somebody climbing up on the front. You got to get with the van rocking and, you know, so all the different angles. Once we set the lights, we could walk away. So we were, we were able, you know, we were extra bodies. So they used us to help with that kind of stuff. What was funny, the girls... <laughs> we got it going pretty hard and i think she was really getting rocked rocked around in there because she's like oh shit <laughs> we're banging around she's like hey that's wait a minute <laughs> you know? we had like four or five guys rocking it cinematic void it's actually a terrifying scene if you think about it because like when it's just natalie in the van and she's locked in there and just like rocking it back and forth and just busting it until the rain comes you got a problem here miss but one of the things i really love about it is is this structure you have this big opening and one girl survives, but the idea of a character that survives and is left is usually like the end of the movie, you know, like Friday 13th, one, two, whatever, you get this final person. And so we're kind of getting our final girl right away in the movie. And then we have the aftermath of that. I can hear shouting, screaming. <laughs> and the screaming stopped. And then one of them, the one with the axe, it was, it was trying to get into the van. 
They were all around the man. All of them. I, I, I thought they had gotten it, but... That's all I can remember. And she has to explain to the cops what happened to her. The cops don't believe her. Do you believe that? Just a prank, Wiley. Just a bunch of jerk-off kids. Probably drunk or on something. Maybe. It's pretty elaborate for a prank. Well, whatever it is, we better have a name for it by tomorrow. There'll be hell to pay if a dozen kids turn up missing overnight. Well, we sure can't tell anyone her story. What do you think, Lieutenant Devon? Let's see what the sunrise brings. My name is Sean Robert, and I was able to design and write the Neon Maniacs trading cards for Terror Vision Records. And what's crazy is in the scene where she's getting grilled by the cops and everything, I mean, she's giving this like heartfelt crying performance about not being believed. And then she goes home and you like you're trying to think of her state of mind. And it's like midnight and she's like, you know what? I think it's time to go first swim in the pool. I, you know, maybe that's her way of de-stressing or, or calming down or something like that. But I love this sequence because it's another informational sequence in this movie where you don't learn the, the weakness of the maniacs really until the third act when it's more explicitly uh, stated where, where Paula figures out that water is what hurts them. And you have the little bit where you hear the lightning during the, the whole party sequence. And that's what makes the maniacs kind of like scatter, but you don't know exactly why. And then you've got her getting into the pool. And like Ape is stalking her, but he can't get to her because she's swimming in the pool. And it's again, it's not really stated, but it's 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 interesting that it's there. And then it just goes to this whole other level. I guess she falls asleep and has the Nightmare on Elm Street kind of dream sequence thing where you get the blood rain in the pool. I'm Dr. Rebecca McHenry. My core area of research is in horror film history swimming in the pool of blood. So that was the, one of the wilder scenes because she's swimming and it's this really beautiful pool scene. And then all of a sudden you see something plop in the water and then blood starts raining down all over the place. My name is Patrick Bromley. You know, her swimming in the pool of blood is a memorable image in a movie that I think has a lot more memorable images than it gets credit for. And I, again, I like some of that kind of more abstract stuff because it could have been a much more straightforward slasher. So I like that we get some kind of exaggerated abstract imagery like that. I was a little bummed it was a nightmare sequence, but yeah, it's such a beautifully shot sequence. Hi, I'm Dan Geras. I'm the drummer in the movie Neon Maniacs. And then there was a rumor, Steve, there was a rumor about a pool where they put red dye in the pool to make it look like blood. And whoever's house it was, got really mad because it stained the plaster. And I don't know if they, how they ended up getting a fixed insurance company or, or, or if it ever even did get fixed because the guy was really mad and ruined his pool. I heard a story about that. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. 
what exactly they're trying to get across with the with this sequence but i love it visually especially when she's trying she's at the edge of the pool and she just can't get up because the the sides are so slick with blood it's pretty great uh brian sour pure cinema podcast the parents of the kids who were were killed are calling her and asking her where their kids are and she's like i don't know so she's fully you know screwed up from this whole scenario Lucky Brett, stop bothering me. Um, is this Miss Lawrence? Uh, this is Philip's mother. I thought you were someone else. Um, I'm sorry, it's just that we're all so worried about her. I mean, I, I don't understand. I don't understand what it is. Is this some kind of a, a joke you're playing? Oh, Miss Lawrence, please help us if you can. Lawrence, what the hell is going on here? Where's my daughter? I'm sorry about your daughter. I don't know. I'm sorry, but I don't know. My name is Timothy Snell, and I edited Neon Maniacs. There was a plot line, sort of, that I had forgotten about that I wish had been somehow resolved or carried a little further, and I can't remember why it wasn't. It was the parents that were looking for the kids it seems to me something should have happened to them or somebody should have been put in the next level of jeopardy i know that she goes and is completely distraught and goes back and goes for a swim in the pool which maybe is the thing that ends that uh that whole plot line and on top of that classic 80s scenario she's at home alone her parents are off in europe this is an 80s trope that used to happen all the time. People's families go away for a trip to Europe in the 80s. Like, that doesn't happen now. Like, who does that? You know what I mean? Hi, darling. Hal and I are having a wonderful time. We left Paris last night, and you can now reach us at the Rome Carlton. We'll see you in a few weeks. Oh, don't forget your dentist appointment next week. Hugs and kisses, sweetheart. Bye. Hi, I'm Megan Navarro. I wrote the article Underseen Monster Movie Neon Maniacs and its Troubled Production from the It Came from the 80s column on bloodydisgusting.com. It's a title about neon maniacs, but there are not in it as much as you would think. What they're doing with the human characters is pretty fascinating for an 80s horror movie, too. And maybe even today, because you've got Natalie, your lead, who they really want to emphasize that she's a virgin. But nobody believes her and she's got the survivor's guilt, which, you know, the whole movie she's getting harassed by the parents of the children or the teens who died in the early scenes. That's not something you see. You don't see survivor's guilt touched upon in an 80s slasher. I think that it's something that I noticed more like I, I wouldn't have picked up in it as a kid. But as an adult, it's interesting to me because especially... I think this was coming off of the golden age of the slashers this was this finally released in 86 but you know like 80 was it 81 85 was kind of like the the prime peak of this and throughout all of that where horror's history in the 80s of of dispatching teens and parents just not getting it it was fascinating to see that she is the survivor of a massacre in the opening and then spends the rest of the movie essentially 
dealing with the fallout of that and having to deal over and over with parents who are like, where is my child and what did you do with them? And that's a very fascinating angle that you don't really see and how that has to deal with. And you're just like, where are her parents and why are they not protecting her? So yeah, it was just a very fascinating angle that kind of gave a little bit more complexity than the one note, you know, virgin archetype. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of like aftermath to the final girl. She begins as the final girl and here's the fallout of that. So you have the idea of a girl who is the only survivor of this incredibly insane massacre of monsters. The monsters drag all the bodies away. That's another thing that's interesting about it is Jason doesn't usually, I mean, he'll clean up his bodies to an extent, but a lot of times the bodies are still around. That's the other thing is like, what do the neon maniacs do with the bodies once they kill them? They just kind of drag them off to the eat them. They repurpose them. Cause like everyone they kill, they get rid of the bodies disappear. No one knows where the bodies are. So it just becomes a missing person thing. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria, I had an idea about all the people who disappeared for who knows how long. There are always missing persons that we never find. How do we know the maniacs didn't get them? That's the idea. And no one has seen the maniacs. They've been around. They're able to enter our dimension, but no one has seen them. Devin? What is that? Gook, slime. Nobody knows yet. Forensics found it all around here. Anything else? No, no bodies, no blood, not even a footprint. The rain took care of that. Maniac number six, scavenger. Dennis Fisher writes in Fangoria. There are 12 maniacs in all. Axe, ape, mohawk, samurai, decapitator, Hangman, Archer, Juice, Doc, Punk Biker, Soldier, and Slasher. And they are assisted by two scavengers, one-eyed lizard-like creatures who drag the bodies back to the maniac's dimension. Well, my name is Jim Ruland. I'm a writer in San Diego, and my connection to Neon Maniacs is personal. My cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci, wrote the film. I recall seeing that original concept art, uh, Mark showing it to me and the gremlin type scavenger characters were a very important part of the story because they, they cleaned up the crime scene. Uh, one of the hallmarks of slasher films are these, you know, all the mayhem and carnage that the creature or the, the shape or whatever it is leaves behind but not with the Neon Maniacs. It was just this spooky slime, which I'm not actually, I'm not sure if the slime was in the script either, but there's no bodies. So it creates this mystery. My name is Timothy Snell and I edited Neon Maniacs. The scavengers were always, at least in the script and that I remember, you saw mostly their hooks dragging around. That we sort of, I know one of the approaches was we got to we can't show these things in their entirety and i think we tried to show pieces and parts of everything as being more effective uh, my name is Brad Henderson i am uh, acquisitions and producer over at Terravision films it was just like why aren't they focusing on these monsters a little bit more and then you find out like they probably did 
you know, just like how there was apparently a, a few, like a bunch of scavengers and they were cut from the movie, you know, uh, they would clean up the bodies and stuff. Cause that's never explained either in the movie is that all these dead bodies are everywhere, but where are they going? I think the most interesting thing is that there are supposed to be multiple scavengers. I think that's the most interesting thing about the movie out of all the mystery. And I, I, that might sound silly to people, but I think the fact that there was a group of things that would come out and pick up bodies and take them back. I'm like blown away by that. I was like, that's, that's a cool thing. I wish that was a thing that I could have seen. And I saw in the movie because it's kind of like, you know, little bottom feeders that opens up the door to so many questions of why they actually take him back to the lair. Is it like out or these, these things from, cause there's like a rumor that they're aliens. Right. I've heard that it's like, there's like some type of portal um, that they're going through, which that's insane to me. I'd rather him just live under the golden gate bridge forever. But uh, yeah, it was just like, I think I found that out a few years ago when I was doing kind of like interviews is that there were supposed to be multiple scavengers. Like I, I forget the number that someone said. And I was like, that's a lot. Like that's a lot of that one. That's a lot of uh, special effects. That's a lot of moving parts. That sounds really tough. <laughs> like, you know, cause it's not like there's just zombies. They're like suits. I'm Alan Apone, makeup effects supervisor for Neon Maniacs. Uh, I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist. We <laughs> actually lost a member of our makeup crew the other day, but Cleve Hall died. Uh, Cleve was responsible for creating the, the little mini dinosaur, cyclopean dinosaurs. He's a whiz with, with foam construction. Yeah, and he had his own TV show for a while called Monster Man. He's a character. You know, just a couple of days ago, he passed away. So we did lose a member of our crew. Well, my name is Barry Buchanan, and I played the archer. One of the maniacs was a, uh, it was kind of a dinosaur-looking creature. It had little wings or something. It was kind of like a, like a little miniature uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I remember they had him hang suspended from a tree. And I remember the, they were trying to make it look like he was flying. And I think the rope just snapped and the guy fell on the ground, but he was still flapping his wings. And I remember the crew and cast just couldn't keep from laughing. Do you remember if the scavengers had wings at one point? They never flew on our show. Maybe that was I something. I mean, that would have been. Weird. I mean, some of this stuff may have been curtailed. Uh, when, you know, to, to fit the new budget. One of the guys I interviewed, he remembers on the first part of the shoot that the scavengers at one part had wings. I don't no, know. There was no wings on them. Okay. <laughs> no, they looked like little sort of Godzilla, Gamera with one eye, you know, but there was never wings. I'm Megan Navarro, uh, lead critic and writer for Bloody Disgusting. Favorite maniac? Have to go with my gut and say the scavengers. They're not technically, you know, leading the charge there, but they're just so interesting to have these little psychotic monsters with one eye hooking people and dragging them into the other dimension or wherever they're staying uh, with no explanation. Just the mystery of them is intriguing to me. The fact that they're full-blown monsters and not humanoid monsters is fascinating to me. I just see ambition 
unadulterated, unfiltered ambition. Mark Carducci, I just imagine in my head, he has this whole extravagant backstory on the maniacs and the world that they came from or the dimension that they came from and their hierarchy. He thought to have scavengers and they're they're very interesting, like cyclops, lizard beasts. And how is what what is this there there's there's clearly a hierarchy there's different species there's you know why are they scavenging why are they dragging the bodies off in the hooks like there are things that you know that this is clearly in the artist's mind but they don't quite translate to screen in in a very coherent way so it makes this kind of clunky fascinating mess that you appreciate if it wasn't for that Fangori article, I would have had no idea what the scavenger's purpose was. I would have had no idea that they were dragging people with their hooks and taking them back to their dimension. None. And, you know, that's that article was from a set visit when they're in the thick of production. And we have no idea because there was such a great length of time. That was a 1985 issue. This was at least a year before the movie finally released. And, you know, I've done enough set visits to know that things change and there's yeah as a filmmaker i'm sure you know that there's what is the the saying go or the movie there's multiple different movies when you make a movie there's the, this movie in script form it becomes a completely different movie in production and then it becomes a completely different movie in the editing and then when it's out into the world it becomes a completely different movie to the viewer so that movie changes so many stages and this is one of the most overt examples of what they set out to do most likely being vastly different with with the final cut with what they got um and there's just so much gaps to fill in that it's you know i'm curious to the decision making about some of these choices that don't read to you know casual viewers as any kind of logical sense but because of those choices they're fascinating mrs shibatsky please report to the assistant principal's office She has to go to school the next day. This kind of stuff you don't always see in these kind of movies. And I kind of love that post-trauma examination. Natalie. Natalie. Mac. What's wrong with you? I've been hollering. Didn't you hear me? I guess I didn't. I'm sorry. God, you look just awful. You should have stayed home today. Oh, I'm okay. I just didn't get any sleep. You sure? Yeah. Excuse me. Are you Natalie Lawrence? Yes. Could I talk to you about last night? What do you know about last night? Hardly anything. See, that's why I want to talk to you. I'm really interested hey, look, in Ken, finding out. Why don't you go back to Sesame Street? But I just want to find out. Hey, can't you see she doesn't want to talk? Come on, now. Let's go to class. But, oh, and the other thing I love about the casting in this film is there aren't a lot of recognizable actors but it does have uh, one of my favorites from Friday 2. It's got Marta Kober as her one of her good friends. And she's in Friday 2, Rad, Baby It's You, Slumber Party Massacre. She's great. And she shows up in a, a bunch of 80 movies, 80s movies like that that I like. So it's neat when she shows up because immediately I have a connection to Friday 2, which is my favorite Friday. And so I'm like, oh, this has got a direct line to one of my favorite horror movies. She doesn't have a huge part, unfortunately, but I love that she shows up and she's great in that sort of supporting. It's very, I feel like it's somewhat similar to her character in Rad. She's just sort of a supporting friend character and she's cool. 
and you know i dig her so yeah great to see her in this movie the saga continues when are you gonna ask her out i hear it's a good way of getting a date why don't you let me do things in my own time all right hey you'll be past puberty and into old age by the time you ask her out come on hi my name is pr paul i played eugene in that wonderfully incredible film neon maniacs do you remember how you got the role? I probably auditioned for it just like any actor. That That's, you know, definitely. It's, nobody called me up and said, we need him in the film. Yeah, you're in a few scenes. You're in the cafeteria scene where you're talking to the lead, who's your buddy. In the lunchroom scene, I sort of remember doing, you know, I, I went back and looked at that for a half a minute. And I kind of remember doing that, maybe ad-libbing some stuff, I I would assume. But, you know, the script was like Shakespeare, so you really didn't want to change any words in it. <laughs> it was so brilliant. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm assuming I did a lot of ad-libbing. <laughs> Jean, she's not the kind of girl you just ask out. Well, look at her. She's, she's beautiful. You got no shot. Look at you, look at her. Look at you and look at her. Hey, I'm good looking. You're disgusting. Hey, listen, forget it, man. I hear she's going out with some guy from college anyway. I told you that. It's a rumor. You hear rumor. You never heard a rumor? She is going out or she was going out. I it, is, was, what I'm trying to say is maybe you should go for the fat lady because I think she's a little bit out of your league. You know what I mean, Chief? I don't want the fat lady. I'm Donna, Raymond's sister. What the hell was that bullshit you had at the police? And where's my brother? Everything I told the police is the truth. I'm sorry, Donna, but your brother is dead. Liar! You're a liar! Look at that. My name is Stephen Romano, and and you can see, you know, so much, you know, blood, sweat, and tears going on in the movie, and there's so many things happening in it that that mark it as as a, as a troubled production. You know, things like uh, oh, early on in the movie, you have a voiceover that kind of bridges the gap of of, of a scene that's like that that was shot or not shot. You know, where they send the girl home from school, you just hear the guy going, "I think we should send you home," and then it's sort of a voiceover as she's coming home from school. Things like that, where you know that you know that uh, stuff wasn't uh, quite completed to their satisfaction. And therefore, Miss Lawrence, we feel that it would be not only in your interest but in the school's interest if you stayed home for a while. I remember, I remember how cute Leilani was, and she was so adorable because I remember we were sitting on a bench having a meal, and she goes, who are you? She, I, I didn't have makeup on. She goes, who are you? And I go, I'm Samurai Warrior. And she goes, oh, my God. She goes, you have such a great look. Why would they put that horrible makeup on you? <laughs> I was in love. I was in love. I got to admit, I was in love with Leilani. <laughs> what? Steven, Dad's on the phone. This delivery boy didn't make today, and you gotta go to work. And why can't you go? Because I'm going shopping with Tracy. I know, I must have been adopted. Yes, my name is Clyde Hayes, and uh, I played Steven in uh, Neon Maniacs. Do you remember working with Leilani? Well, you know, uh, Leilani was a, um, a sweetheart, as I remember, and talented and beautiful and tough. 
and uh, and a good actress. And, uh, you know, trying to work in something like this is a little odd, you know, being just just the nature of what it is and dealing with some of the things. But uh, I remember, you know, everybody for the most part was pretty good. And um, I hope that I wasn't too much of a pain in the ass. Um, but I, as I remember, you know, again, other than it, you know, being somewhat low budget and having difficulty and running out of money and then the stress that that put on everybody. And, and uh, um, so, um, you know, that uh, those are really the most salient things at this point that, uh, that I remember. About. And because I haven't seen it, I'm sure if I saw it, um, that it would bring back a lot of those, uh, a lot of those memories. But, but like I said, I remember, you know, for the most part, everybody um, was uh, was pretty good. Um, uh, that scene, yeah, there was a scene we were shooting, a scene at the house out in Woodland Hills in the San Fernando Valley, I believe. Right, and was delivering groceries or something like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is one of your yeah. scenes. Yeah, in, 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 yeah, in, 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 and some shots in, in the kitchen there and doing that, uh, trying to get that uh, some, you know, shtick, trying to work out and <laughs> stuff like that. But uh, hi, hi, I got your groceries. I guess you heard a little about what... Yeah, um, a little. School gossip, that kind of stuff. Does everybody think I'm a liar or cracking up? I don't know, maybe I am cracking up. I'm not even sure what I saw anymore. Natalie, I don't think you're a liar and I don't think you're cracking up. I believe you. Why? Because you do. But yeah, no, I love that that grocery delivery scene. I love that as a meet cute. You, re that's one of the things I actually love about the movie is that I really buy the relationship between those two that develops. A because you know we get them established in the very first scene with the dog in the van, and and he she he gets kind of she gets kind of yanked away from him there. Like they almost have a connection there, and then he comes to her again. So that's already set up. So it's not like she's meeting him for the first time. She's meeting him. Or she knows him already, but she's seeing him for the second time in the movie. And it really, it's a warm, you know, she needs somebody to be there for her and he's there and it's great. But between that stuff and going back to the school and having people look at her funny and just the idea that she's gone through this trauma and the movie is recognizing and acknowledging the trauma of it, which is another thing that these horror movies don't really do. You have these incredibly horrific things that happen in a Friday the 13th movie and you really don't have much processing of it, you know, outside of maybe some cops cleaning up the scene a little bit. Like you don't really, you maybe get a little bit of like some person ends up in an institution and that is kind of their version of like, well, they went crazy from it, but you know, this is a little bit more realistic while it's still being crazy. So anyway, that wraps up this episode of, in the shadows of the neon maniacs next week is our season one finale and we are going to take a look at everyone's favorite character paula and also the production shutdown and thank you to everyone that's been reviewing us on itunes i really appreciate it thank you so much 
This has been a really <laughs> difficult podcast to create. I can't tell you how many wrong numbers I've called to find maniacs and people cursed me out and just didn't want to be a part of this. Uh, I just hope you're all really digging it. Thank you for putting kind reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. And again, want to thank Shane McKinney for my opening and closing theme music. And I want to thank you all again for listening to the show. The show is written and produced and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And until next week, stay out of the shadows. <laughs>